Welcome to Sounding History, a podcast about music, history, climate change, and culture. I'm Chris Smith from Texas Tech University in the USA. And I'm Tom Irvine from the University of Southampton in the UK. This is a podcast about the global history of music with a twist. Our history is not shaped around famous performers, composers, and works, but rather as reflections upon the relationship between sound and the exploitation of Earth's resources. Today, scientists and historians alike argue that around the year 1500 of the Common Era, human extraction of natural resources began to change the climate itself. They call this new era the Anthropocene. With the Anthropocene came capitalism and the globalization of many aspects of human culture, along with settler colonialism, mass enslavement, and environmental destruction. We explore how processes like these have shaped 500 years of history and the worlds of sound we occupy today. Concentrating on three core categories, labor, energy, and data, we seek new, different, and challenging stories about music on a global scale. What shaped the world in which we find ourselves? Who are its many voices? We invite you to join us as we unpack why sound is, when, and for whom. So let's begin. just been listening to a song from upstate New York in the first quarter of the 19th century, a song called the Erie Canal. And it commemorates a kind of moment in the history of North America, both in terms of industry, but also in terms of communications and a sense of national identity, which is really transformative, which is the opening, the construction and the opening of the Erie Canal, which connected the Hudson River and the Great Lakes system. And Tom, that's a moment when the nation, even at that moment, recognizes we are now something different than we were. There were huge celebrations to commemorate the opening of this new avenue for transport. And yet, the very people who had dug the canal weren't even allowed in the parade. Can I ask you a question, Chris, before we go on with this canal stuff? Because I think a lot of us, the Erie Canal, especially if you're like you and me and you grew up on the East Coast. It's a thing, right? We know about the Erie Canal, but I don't think any of us, at least I can't consciously recall having ever seen it, even though I lived in upstate New York for a few years. How long is it? How long does it take to get from one end to the other? And how long did it take to build? It took about three years to build between about 1825 and 1828. It had first been conceived as a valuable project In the immediate aftermath of the American Revolution in the 1790s, there were already people, people like DeWitt Clinton, Hmm. who proposed to the Washington government, the new government of these new United States, if we can connect the Great Lakes system across, essentially across Pennsylvania and upstate New York to the Hudson, which begins at Manhattan Island and goes upstate north into uh, all the way to Albany, if we can connect those two things, we can ship goods by water 
internally. We can ship goods and we can ship songs, right? So yeah. here we are, Global Sounds podcast. Tell me, what did it sound like? Well, we've heard a short snippet of a song that was probably sung on that river. And you mentioned earlier, growing up where we did, when we did. I remember in the little red cloth bound library collection of songs to sing and grow on, a song called The Erie Canal. I've got a new, her name is Sal, 15 miles on the Erie Canal. Oh, that Canal. one. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It rings a bell, right? Yeah, it does, for yeah. for okay. blokes yeah. like us. It's the people who dug that, the people who conceived that canal were new aristocracy. They were uh, Jeffersonian or subsequently Jacksonian political elites who said there's money to be made by expediting the speed of transport via water, which prior to the railroad, the quickest and most economical way to ship goods and people was by water. That's why river ports are so important and why canals that could connect to natural rivers, the way the Erie Canal connects the St. Lawrence and the Great Lakes system and the Hudson, it made it possible to ship goods in a much more cost-effective way that was more lucrative. But the people who did the work, not the people who conceived it and proposed it to the George Washington's federal government, but the people who did the work were obviously working-class laborers, and they came from all over. And they mostly came from the north of England, some from Wales, and or they were African-American. So if you visualize the northeast quadrant of the United States, you travel north up the Hudson from Manhattan Island, north up the Hudson River, sort of up the western slope of the Adirondacks, and you come to Albany, which was the state capital. It was the old Dutch capital, in, or it was Dutch New York. And then there are various river systems that connected intermittently westward to the Great Lakes. But the Erie Canal, so the Erie Canal was not dug as one contiguous, perfectly lined, waterborne thoroughfare. It was a series of connections between existing watercourses and widening them. And the result is that some of the oldest routes in the nation, the single-digit highway routes, the old post roads, follow that line. So take me back to the sound world here. Okay, the sound world. We're in the United States of America, the young United States of America, first decades of the 19th century. What's the musical status quo? Like, what kind of music are people listening to, making, playing, doing? And what changes because of the people that come to dig this canal? Great question. It's a really good way to frame it. And again, it's it's partly tiered by class. The people in the cities, the people, particularly in some place like Boston, maybe Philadelphia, and then in, with a slightly different content, uh, Baltimore and New York City, for example, those are people who are listening to what's essentially 18th century chamber music. They're listening to light classical music, music that you've worked on, Tom, and music that is associated with a certain kind of social aspiration, social class, music for leisure consumption. Thanks for outing me as an 18th century classical music guy. So I know as a Mozart scholar that there's Mozart flying around the eastern, eastern seaboard of the colonies and the United States during Mozart's lifetime. And it's coming to people in the form of printed music, which they then play at their spinets and their pianos. And it's actually mainly women who are playing at the pianos. It's very much just like in Europe. Yeah, exactly. And that is the aspirational music of the people in the Federalist period who are composing music in America, Francis Hopkinson. They're writing light songs and chamber songs and small chamber works in imitation of this 18th century classical music. That's the music of the moneyed classes. That's the music of the DeWitt Clintons and George Washington, 
the George Washington cabinet. The Hamiltons, I dare say. The Hamiltons, I dare say, yeah. <laughs> and it's a, it's a really apropos analogy there, because the people who are not represented there are the people who did the work, who are mostly immigrant people and people of color. And so you get this really fascinating music folk culture that's strung along the route of the diggings of the canal. And you have miners, miners and canal builders who are mostly immigrants. They come from Lancashire and Yorkshire in the north of England, because those are the guys who'd learned how to dig the canals that powered the Industrial Revolution in the UK. And so they bring dance tunes, particularly monophonic dance tunes, and especially they bring this thing it's a, it's a wonderful sound, and we'll put it in the playlist that goes with the podcast, the sound of hard wooden clogs dancing on resonant surfaces. So the sound world here is a sound world of fiddle tunes, tunes on the, on the violin or the German flute, the wooden flute, of hard clogs on hard resonating surfaces. That's the music. Can I just stop you there? So you're talking about dancing too, right? So the yeah. clogs, the cl nobody's playing the clogs like instruments, right? They're being played because people's feet are dancing and they're in these wooden shoes. Right, and because clogs were originally work shoes, just the way hopnail boots were originally work shoes, right? When people later in Appalachia, when they were flat footing, they were dancing in hobnail boots. We have to remember that the sound world of post-revolutionary and early federalist North America, the sound world, of, it was a world still pretty much of natural sounds, where the loudest sounds that people heard were church bells and dogs' barks. <laughs> in terms of, literally, in terms of what was the loudest thing you heard, nobody had heard an internal combustion engine. Perhaps you might hear um, a steam mill, because st mills were steam-powered before they figured out how to put a steam engine on a piece of rolling stock, and that would really change the face of North America again. But it's essentially a, a, a conversation-level environment. And the loudest sounds you heard, loudest human-made sounds you heard, were church bells. So this is an intimate kind of sound world. Let's try a thought experiment. So, oh my God, I'm a native New Yorker, but I'm trying to figure this out. So there's a New York State throughway goes up north, up the, high, up the Hudson River towards Albany, right? And the canal would have been in proximity to that, to some point where- Right along that watercourse, yeah. At some point, the Hudson, the canal meet, right? And if you if you go there now, you might be standing like on a throughway overpass and you'll hear like, it'll be crazy loud. And one thing that we want to ask our listeners to this podcast to do is to exercise their historical oral imagination, right? And, and think, okay, so think of the interstate highways or whatever, and think about standing on a, what do you call it, a fly, you call it flyover? <laughs> Yeah, right? Is overpass. That a, it's overpass. Sorry, I'm too British. It's called an overpass. You stand on an overpass, and 200 years ago, that overpass would have been maybe a place where a canal met a river. Yeah. Or a canal met a road. And today, it's incredibly loud. Right. But at that time, at that time, a canal boat, they call them, in the UK, they call them narrow boats, right? Right. Because they're very long, but they are of very narrow beam, because the canals themselves weren't very wide. And if you had boats traveling in two directions, they had to be able to sort of slip by one another. They were horse-drawn. There were teams of horses in stages that pulled them along a towpath. And so some of those roads were built upon those towpaths. And this, it is not a big sound, but it was an incredibly cosmopolitanizing phenomenon. And the sound of those canals, the sound at that time, in contrast to the flyover, to the overpass and the skull-crushing volume of eight lanes of traffic, that sound would have been a sound of wind and waves, water sounds, hmm. and the sounds of people singing to coordinate work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? 
so the sound of work on these canal diggings in the 18 teens and the 1820s would have been the sound of people of, of handheld hammers and the occasional caisson guys swinging a big iron ram together. But overwhelmingly, it would have been a human scaled soundscape. And so what happens is that a population grows up along these rivers, along these these diggings, of people who come from different backgrounds, Lancashire and Yorkshire and Northumbrian and Welsh miners, former coal miners or tin miners, who had learned how to do the engineering work to cut rock, to shape and lay rock, to establish secure banks for these canals that the towpaths ran on. And they meet also free black workers, right? They were not really slaves working by the 1820s. They were not slaves working on canals in upstate New York. There were probably a lot of guys who were former slaves who had been freed in the first decade of the 19th century. So there's a lot of tension, actually, because the free the free blacks who've newly entered the labor force, they're looking for work, and the Irish and Lancastrian and Yorkshire and Welsh miners, they're competing for that work. But you wind up with an incredibly polyglot kind of sound world where African-American music and dance making meet Northern English and Irish music and dance making. And what emerges is a sound of fiddles and flutes and hard shoes and singing. And that's the sound world out of which this contemporaneous sound world, which began in the section of the episode, the Erie Canal. This is a new class of people who are newly trained, who are meeting as a result of commerce. Like we're going to get the, the DeWitt Clintons of the world say, we're going to get the guys who know how to do this. But because they were working class and they were immigrant and they were people of color, they were essential workers, what we'd now called in the pandemic, essential workers. But when it came time to open the canal and run a parade down Fifth Avenue in Manhattan to celebrate the opening of the canals, free blacks and Irish were specifically barred from the celebrations. So what you're building up for for me and for our listeners is a new sound world that's driven by rivers and canals and transport and migration. And meetings. Meetings and meetings, and we'll be coming back. I think in the course of our uh, of a series of podcasts to, for instance, the backstory of the free people of color who were working on these canals because they didn't just drop in out of nowhere, as you pointed out. There, you know, probably many of them are formerly enslaved people, and I just want to just sum up this little portion of what we've been talking about with something that I'm picking up from you, which is you want to also paint a picture in sound of class division, right? So there's, there's in this piece of, of what we call American music history, there's a sort of a cosmopolitan educated class. And then there are these people who are out, the, you know, working with their hands and they're making a different kind of music. Yeah, and to take it back as we move toward a very different era and, a, and another kind of sound world and another kind of mechanization of sound, the sound of a new mechanical world, to just remember that as long as there has been an interplay between classes, between economically advantaged and economically disadvantaged classes for whatever combinations of reasons, ethnicity, inheritance, caste systems, whatever they are, there have been sounds associated with those classes. And sometimes those sounds exist in a sort of uneasy balance, and sometimes they are directly in conflict or even competition Mm. with one another. And that's, I think, in terms of our sounding history podcast, 
That's why the fact that the Irish were lit and the free blacks were literally barred from the parade with fireworks and ringing church bells down Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. That's an attempt by the DeWitt Clintons of the world to kind of erase those workers from the sound picture Hmm. of this new nation they were trying to imagine into being. So here's a question that might come out of proverbial left field. I can think of all these times when you would you would hear that Erie Canal song down, or I grew up in some sort of bluegrass or whatever concert, you know, down the Village Green kind of thing, summertime. Maybe I'm it's all rose-colored glasses, my youth in rural Long Island, right? But a historically true, um, a historically true performance of something like that really would involve a couple of guys with a hammer and an anvil, right? Maybe. And I'm thinking about the rhythm of work being in the music. Yeah. Could you talk to me a little bit more about that, like about how the music has that work rhythm in it? Well, we'll have lots more to say when we talk about song as part of work environments on board ships, in the Deep South, uh, later on when the railroads are built in the in the repertoire of work songs that are associated with the guys who actually laid the rails who went by the wonderful title, they were called Gandhi Dancers because they literally coordinated the swinging of the hammers and the leverage of crowbars to move those iron rails. But we should also keep in mind that nobody is just one thing and nobody is defined exclusively by their job. And so there was there were songs to coordinate work, particularly coming out of the Afro-Caribbean tradition. But there are also songs to pass time. And for that matter, there are songs that commemorate experiences and narratives, which is something that perhaps in the Erie Canal song, in that context, that's particularly something that comes out of the European tradition of narrative ballads, narrative songs, right? Not just lyric songs, but songs that say, and then we did this, and then we did this, and then we did this. And the Erie Canal. Yeah, so the medium of song is a, of a storytelling, of news gathering, of news. You know, spreading the news about events that you see that across, uh, actually across many cultures, but in particular in European culture in this in this time. Yeah, it's an oral and aural literature as opposed to a print literature. I do want to ask you one question about practical stuff. How do you know what this stuff sounded like? Nobody was writing it down. Indeed, they weren't. They were leaving it out. They were leaving it out of their accounts, and they certainly weren't writing down the the notes and rhythms of these pieces. So we have to do a lot of indirect stuff in brief, and this is something I will talk about lots, at least in my from my perspective in the podcast in future episodes. We have to go to indirect sources, but they're not the fact that they're indirect does not always make them imprecise. A lot of the work I've done has to do with pictures or descriptions of pictures, sketches that were made on site. People maybe making sketches in anticipation of later doing sort of heroizing paintings back in their studios, but sitting there on the diggings and sketching what it looked like when some guy was swinging a hammer or they were working together to build a caisson. So one is iconography. Another is period descriptions, just what we call primary sources, this accounts, I was there in the diggings and this is these are the words of the songs that they sang. And a third one is, and it's the trickiest one, but I think Everywhere outside of the European tradition, it's a highly regarded and central one, which is the oral tradition of songs and tunes learned and taught and passed on by ear and in the memory. And that is rich in many cultures, but it's especially rich in West African culture, where these free men of color, where their cultural traditions originated. The idea that you can have a history that is remembered and recited. So it seems to me like in the coming episodes... We're going to have to return to that question quite a bit. How does the oral and the oral and the written, how do they interact with each other? How does music get kept as data for us to study later? 
not just as relic or antiquarian object, but as data that gets passed along. So we'll come back to that. And we'll come back to that a little bit in a few minutes on this episode. I kind of want to wrap up with a final question for you about this really fascinating chapter. And I'm really glad we started with it. So we've been talking about mechanization, right? We've been talking about like the the arrival of the machine. So we're talking about the early industrial revolution. So things people did by hand are now very mechanized. We're talking in this series of podcasts about energy and labor and data, right? So I just talked about data. Talk to me about talk to me about energy. What's this got to do with energy, this story? Some of the work that we've been doing for our larger project, our larger book project, for which the podcast is kind of a companion, has led me to think a lot about the course of events, let us both, but in, in the work that I'm doing, to think about the course of events by which humans learn to harness different kinds of energy. And one of the oldest, of course, for transport, which leads to commerce, is to harness the wind. And to think about the soundscape of sailing ships. And you know, if you're if you're on the forecastle of an 18th century sailing ship, or you're on the prow of a 19th century canal boat, what are you hearing? And how do you use sound to help you do your job? When is the wind shifting and how do you know that the wind is shifting? Or what is the boat or the ship telling you in terms of how its hemp and iron and wood are working and sounding? Or the sound of the particular gait of the horse that's pulling the canal boat. This is, at this moment, this Erie Canal moment. And for that matter, again, the, when we go to our, the second half of today's episode, we talk about 20th century phenomenon. We're hearing sound worlds that are actually changing, and the change in those sound worlds are indicative of a change in how energy is harnessed. Canal boats in their period were a remarkably innovative feat of engineering, which figured out how to literally harness horse power to waterborne transport prior to having figured out how to put a mechanical device on the transport that could generate even more horsepower, even more efficiently. That's cool. So I, I think if we were wealthier and we were making a uh, television doc series of television documentaries, we'd have filmed this episode on a canal boat, right? And then we'd have used some magic to take ourselves on the canal onto the next thing. So let's let's go there. And I've got another picture for you. So we're going to transport ourselves now to Manchester after World War II. So in the late 1940s, Manchester, industrial city, plenty of canals, by the way. At the University of Manchester or Victoria University of Manchester, as it was called then. And working there, Alan Turing, famous name, made his name as a hero in World War II, decoding German communications, creating a new kind of decoding machine that broke the German codes. And he built a new computer in Manchester and it made a sound. And so let's listen to that sound. I really want to hear about what on earth is the nature of that, but I just want to check myself, Tom. I know you've worked with the Alan Turing Institute in the UK. I know Alan Turing as a uh, the protagonist of what to a layperson seems a quite sad story, a story of a, remar a remarkably brilliant man, a brilliant man and a true patriot who was badly mistreated by the social restrictions of his time. So can you tell us just the, the slightest bit about Turing? Yeah, Alan Turing was gay. And despite the fact that he became the founder of computer science as a discipline as we know it, 
And it had, even before World War II, incredibly fast career, lots of influence. Then during World War II, you've probably seen the film with Benedict Cumberbatch, right? He developed this machine that, like I said, decoded the German codes. And then after World War II, he worked as an academic and also with the security services for what GCHQ, which is like the NSA in Britain. And then through a series of unfortunate circumstances, his life as a homosexual was exposed and he was convicted of gross indecency, which was, you know, was a crime and a sentence to a really horrifying chemical castration, essentially. And after a period of that, he took his own life. Because of the film and also because of the memory of him, he's become quite an icon. And his name is being used for all sorts of things now in Britain, including a big research institute about AI, which would have been obviously impossible without Turing's Turing was the first person to theorize AI, the thinking machines, in a modern way. It's the famous Turing test, like, can you tell it's a machine? And in this postcard, I kind of want to get into a sound world. So Turing is not well known as a music thinker. He apparently played the violin, but, you know, music wasn't really on his mind when he was doing this kind of, um, when he was building these computers. And this is uh, what we've just heard, that it's a really awful sounding sound, is uh, a recording of one of the first big mainframe computers that was at the Manchester University Computing Machine Laboratory. And this machine, Turing built it to tell its operators, to communicate with its operators via sound, right? So he programmed the machine. I don't want to anthropomorphize it. He programmed the machine to make clicks, right? And the clicks were controlled by the internal clock. Clocks are really important to computers because the computers need to know what order things are happening. And so there's an internal clock in there and it makes a click. And he found out how to modulate the clicks by playing them closer together or further apart. They make different kinds of sounds as warning signals, right? So there was like a little set of warnings, like if you okay, that means it's overheating, go look over there at that vacuum tube, or means something else. So he had actually intuitively programmed the computer to speak, well, to speak, to, to communicate sonically with its audience. So I have to jump in. I'll, I'll let you continue, but I have to tell you, that one of the things I ran across recently in some of the work I've been doing on our project is a precursor of this, which I don't think you and I have even shared, which is an idea that was very much around in the mid-19th century of using the telegraph to play music. And in fact, one of the designers of the telegraph also played the Wheatstone concertina, the little octagonal button. You sent me, you sent me a photograph of this. And it was astounding looking creature. It was like piano keys with a telegraph. Right. And, and so the Morse code thing on it. And yeah. one of these designers, utopianists in the 1860s, said, I can even imagine a time when there would be a Morse code wire into individual private homes and different wires would play different rhythmic music. And one would be able to select from the comfort of one's own home which telegraph music to listen to. Um, Back to Manchester and this this machine. So this machine played sounds to communicate with its operators to let the people who were working it know how it was doing in a way. It was a sort of a, a way that he you could indicate its workings. So the first thing I'd just like to point out is we have a really early moment in the history of computing. And we're sitting, we're doing this on a computer. Everybody's working, you know, we have... Computers are everywhere, but they have a history, and their early history, these early mainframes are, you know, ancestors of what we have in front of us because they work on the same principles. And we're used to our phones and our computers and, you know, sending us beeps and clicks to tell us what's going on, beeps mostly, to know what's going on. But that was a, a novelty for sure. And what happened next is really interesting because it shows how technology is never path 
dependent. It's never directed. The stories of technology are never like straightforward ones. Weird accidents happen, right? And what happened? It reminds me of the fact that the invention of the internet itself, in terms of its national security intentions, was that it should explicitly be a decentralized communicative system, precisely so that it could not be knocked out. That's a perfect example of how the internet was not formed on like a path-dependent plan executing ABC. Neither was the mainframe computer, it turns out. And I don't want to overestimate this moment because it does seem to be kind of accidental, but Turing attracted, of course, younger colleagues who wanted to come and work with him in Manchester. And one of them was named Christopher Strachey, otherwise not known, I don't think, to the history books who came in one day to where the computer was and realized that it had the potential to generate music, or as we would say, synthesize music, because it could already make alarms, right? So he said, he asked Alan Turing if he could have the computer for the evening to see if he couldn't generate some sounds. Now, you have to understand, have the computer from the evening. The computer didn't have any kind of interface that were, you know, it had like switches, right? And the only way to program it was in it didn't have a there wasn't a programming languages there was no compiler languages it worked in zeros and ones you know in base two but there was a programming language well not really a language there was a programming code you could do uh in hexadecimal right which is a base 16 so it's the numbers zero to nine i think sorry correct me if i'm wrong computer scientists and some letters and that's how you did it and this fella strachey stayed up all night and he taught the computer he programmed the computer to play God Save the King. And I, I just have to say, that is the most Monty Python-esque picture I can imagine. Someone staying up all night long in a prototypical computer lab in Manchester to program God Save the Queen. Well, it's king at that point. Sorry. Uh, we're not quite to we're be not queen. Quite to she Elizabeth has been yet. queen for a long time, but, <laughs> but this is her father. And it doesn't sound like much at all, right? But I think it's a really important turning point or inflection point in the history of music because what Strachey did was he literally digitized music. And as far as I can tell, this is maybe one of the very first times that that's happened. He digitized it in the sense that he turned it into digits, into numbers. And the next synthesizers that I can really think of are the, the you know the Moog synthesizers from the early 1960s, and that's that's quite you know 15 years later than this. What it says to me is that there's always been a sense, certainly as far back as Christopher Strachey, and really going back long before that to Ada Lovelace and Charles Babbage and and people working with mechanical devices, mechanical clocks, um, automata. Even Mozart wrote for automata and was fascinated by these music-playing machines. And there's always been an interest in saying, okay, this technology was designed for communications or to process data for accounting purposes. But there's also always been a concurrent thread of creative types coming along and scratching their heads and saying, but wait, if the hooters can tell us when there's an issue, if the bells can tell us when a part of the machine is malfunctioning, then those same bells could be programmed to play God Save the King. And the really ironic thing, Tom, is that I realized the reason that I thought of the version that's God Save the Queen is because I went right to the distorted electric guitars of the Sex Pistols. Oh, the Sex Pistols, yeah, right, right. So, God Save the Queen, fascist regime. Okay, we'll put that on another episode for sure, because how could we do this? How could we do this global history of music without punk? But let me drag you back to the point I want to make about this. 
strategy, cheering the people around him. It was good fun. In fact, if you listen to the longer version of the recording, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes, you hear them having a laugh. You can hear the other people in the lab laughing at how funny it is that Strachey's gotten the computer to make this sound. But the principle that he stumbled on there of being able to turn music into number in a new way, and you mentioned Ada Lovelace, really interesting. So that's a woman computer scientist, proto-computer scientist of the early 19th century, literally the daughter of Lord Byron. And she's well known, and we'll come back to her at some point for having actually thought about the possibility of a machine that could compose music by itself. So that is made possible by what Turing's computer could suddenly do. Because if you could make the computer make noises out of zeros and ones, theoretically, the computer can be programmed to randomly generate zeros and ones and turn those into noises. And that's where you get musical composition. But I think something even more far-reaching than that happened, which is that it sets the stage for the world, the sound world we live in now, because we live in the world of streaming services. Not just the sound world, but the world of sound as commerce as well. So we were talking about the Erie Canal, about how music travels. So music traveled in the form of printed music to the East Coast, maybe from Europe, or was printed in Philadelphia or something like that. That's one way. Another way is music- Or in people's memories. So now- Music travels along the internet, and it travels a hell of a lot faster than it did in the 1820s, but it's still traveling, and it's still traveling along a route. And, and the zeros and ones, the digitization of music makes it possible for music to become data and travel electronically through fiber optic cables or whatever it is. And I just wanted to give a shout out to some really recent work on music and digitization by a musicologist named Kyle Devine who teaches in Norway, and you wrote a book with the slightly discomforting title Decomposed, The Political Economy of Music. And it's a book that I, I highly recommend, MIT Press. People should pick it up and read it. He set out to write a book about vinyl records, and he ended up writing a book about streaming services, or partly about streaming services, because he thought that the streaming services, the zeros and ones, right, made possible by this moment in Manchester, that they're like completely dematerialized music. And that's what people would intuitively think. It's just zeros and ones on my phone. But it turns out that the energy infrastructure that's underneath the streaming services could be a massive carbon source. And that's something we should worry about if we're looking at our overall carbon budgets. It could be a mammoth problem. And so you may think that your phone, sorry, listeners, upon which you may well be listening to this podcast, by the way, is a kind of a sustainable way for you to interface music and media because you don't have these big, you know, CDs with plastic covers or records made out of vinyl or you, know, you have just zeros and ones. But the zeros and ones are actually sitting somewhere on a server farm and the server farm has to be cooled. And the server farm is really just a much bigger version of the computer that Turing was making. So if we want to kind of tie these two threads together, right, Chris? I mean, I'd be interested to hear what you think. The canal, right? The canal, which is a channel that music can flow through, that also makes people make music. So people go to the canals and the canal calls forth kind of music. The computer is itself a machine that gets set up on its own kind of canal system, the internet. And it calls forth a kind of music or a kind of way of interacting with music. 
I think there are lots of connections that I've already seen between and among these two examples and others that I'm sure listeners will occur to listeners and feel free to email us and tell us all the ways that we could have thought about this additionally. But what I would say is that the story that we're telling of music in the Anthropocene, music from the approximately the year 1500, is a story about humans changing the ecosphere, forging new connections, building new highways, cutting canals, developing server farms in Iceland to keep them cooled through the shrinking polar ice caps. And it's also about the fact that music itself is embedded as part of sound worlds, and that those sound worlds themselves are reflective of historical moments, and that they are those moments are constantly transforming, and that music is not separate from those sound worlds or from those historical moments, but flows through them. So we talk about music, and we talk about sound a lot in this podcast, but we're really talking about a history of human interface with the planet over the last 500 years. And I think even if we're listening on our latest issue smartphones, even if we are getting our music from a server in Iceland, reflection, consideration, mindful awareness of the impact of human choice is probably our best shot for saving ourselves as well. You've been listening to Sounding History. Keep in touch. Whether you're a music lover, history enthusiast, student, or just plain interested, we'd love to hear what you think. Contact us at soundinghistorypodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter and check out all the show notes. And follow us on Instagram at Sounding History Podcast and Twitter at Sounding History. We look forward to hearing your thoughts, questions, and suggestions. And if you like what we're doing, we'd so appreciate it if you'd leave us a review to help other folks find the show. And finally, if you're a new listener and want to learn more about who we are and the ongoing book project that inspired the podcast, check out episode one. Sounding History is funded by grants from the University of Southampton Faculty of the Arts and Humanities and by Texas Tech University. Production by Seedpod Sound at seedpodsound.com. In our next episode, we'll be listening to stones and whales. Tom will help us hear a stone pillar in Xi'an, China, along the famous Silk Road, and I'll take us to the sound worlds of the decks of Yankee whalers. I'm Tom. And I'm Chris. Until next time.